Man, oh man, what a powerful service we have already had today. Y'all going to have to pray for my voice. I have been through two praise and worship services and one sermon and one altar call. And uh, you would think I would have enough sense to dial back praise and worship a little bit. But uh, it doesn't seem right to be in the presence of God and withhold. Because God has never withheld from me. So how in the world can I come into His presence, into His church with His people, and and try to give Him less than what is available, less than what I can offer Him? So uh, pray for my voice. But uh, God's going to help me to get through this sermon today. I'd like to give honor to Pastor Hoffman, who is ministering, I believe, on the West Coast today. Uh, Our executive pastor, Pastor Mike, not feeling too good, um, which is why I got the call on Friday uh, to be able to speak to you today. Our youth pastor is in Brazil today, ministering in Brazil. Praise God. Our worship pastor, Draylon Young, just poured his heart and soul out on this platform. And, um, And so lucky for you, you get the fifth string pastor today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. With the help of the Lord, He'll, uh, he'll anoint me and, and hopefully your hearts will be ready to receive the Word of God today. But uh, uh, my name is John Gibbs. I am uh, the uh, First Steps pastor here at First Church. Honored and privileged to be able to serve under the amazing leadership of Pastor and Sister Hoffman. To be a part of what God has got going on in this church in Sterling Heights, Michigan. But I am 41 years old. I was born in 1981, and for any of you who were born in the 1980s, you'll understand what I am talking about. It was an amazing decade to be a young boy growing up in the 80s, and I honestly, I feel a little bit sorry for some of you. Uh, We actually got to play outside. It's this amazing place with fresh air and sunshine, and... uh, that was the rule that we had at our house. We would get together with all the neighborhood kids and go out on a Saturday morning. And uh, the only rule was you had to be back home before the streetlights came on. Okay, imagine that, letting your kid go run around all day long with no cell phone, no accountability. And uh, the only rule was, hey, make sure you're back by dark. It was a different world and different environment. In fact, the house that I grew up with until I was five years old had a dirt road on it. And at the end of the dirt road were uh, railroad tracks. And of course, us young boys fascinated by railroad tracks, it's where we like to play. And we would gather quarters and put quarters and line them up on the railroad tracks. And uh, the next day or, or whenever we had, were available to play next, we would go back to those railroad tracks and find that the train had smushed all of those quarters and completely flattened them out. And now I'm 41. I've got a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old. And I look back and I wonder, Mom and Dad, what in the world were you thinking letting a 5-year-old go play all day long by some railroad tracks? 
In fact, there was a pond at the front of our street right off of Auburn Road, and that pond is still there today. And we would play around this pond as five, seven-year-old. My older brother, Jeremiah, was about seven. And uh, I just remember spending a lot of time there with the kids in the neighborhood. And I have no idea what in the world my parents were thinking, letting us play all day long by railroad tracks and by a pond without any supervision. But it was a great decade to grow up in. I mentioned that I have an older brother. He is a year and a half older than I am. Uh, I have a younger sister, Michelle, who's sitting right over there. And she is about a year younger than I am. Um, it was fun growing up with an older brother and a younger sister. But uh, I, of course, am the child in the middle. Okay, There's, there's actually classes taught about middle child. There's a syndrome. It's called middle child syndrome. We've got a whole syndrome named after us. All right, praise God. And it, it sent me down this path of trying to understand a little bit about what it was like to be a middle child and why I am the way that I am. In fact, we actually have a photo, not of me, but one I found. This I thought this was appropriate. See the guy right there? He's realizing right now at this moment in time that he is indeed, and in fact, the middle child. And I know the feeling on that face right there. Praise God. So I started to investigate what in the world is it, is it like to be a firstborn child. Uh, there are certain characteristics and certain attributes that first children, firstborn children have, not Every uh, um, attribute is a, uh, associated with the birth order, but in general, a lot of this is true. So uh, the firstborn children are typically the best leaders. In fact, over 60% of the U.S. presidents that we have had have been firstborn children. It's because the firstborn children have to take care of the rest of the siblings, right? All of you firstborn know what I'm talking about. Hey, make sure you take care of your sister. You know, you're going to be out playing. you got to make sure you're watching out for your younger brother. You're responsible for them. So naturally growing up, they learn the responsibility of caring for somebody else and leading somebody else. Typically, your firstborns, they're the ones who achieve the most. They're the ones who oftentimes are focused the most and driven the most because of their birth order and their upbringing. Um, a lot of times they are very structured and very disciplined because honestly, the way you parent your kids is a little bit different. You ever seen somebody who just had a baby and the mom's leaving the house to go grocery shopping and there's like two diaper bags, a crib, uh, three spare clothes, anything you could ever need for whatever may happen. She's got a month's supply of food. Okay, it's a little bit different when it's your first kid and you treat it a little bit different. Can you imagine your first kid, their first play date? And they had somebody, uh, the neighborhood comes over to play and, and there was a, the, your son was playing with a toy or wanted a toy that the neighbor kid had and they took it. They said, no, I'm going to teach you how to share. You're going to learn how to share. And doesn't matter if your kid threw a fit or not, you were strong and you were firm and you, you drew your line in the sand, said, no, I'm raising you, I'm going to raise you right. 
And there was a firmness from your parental standpoint with your firstborn. It, it, it kind of dwindles after that. By the time you have two or three kids and your youngest kid is crying and they want the toy, even though your eldest had it first, you look at your eldest and you say, can you just help me out? Can you just let your younger sister play with the toy? Because I've been hearing crying now for six years and I'm tired of the crying. Help me out. And it doesn't matter anymore that you need to teach them to share. You just want some peace and quiet. Amen. It's real and it's true. So that is your firstborn. Which brings me to the baby of the family. We have any babies of the family today? Praise God. You might not be so excited when you hear what I got to say about you. <laughs> Typically, the babies of the family, they're fun. They have a, they have a, a freedom. And, and a, they're a lot of times the dreamers of the bunch. Because they have known a carefree world. Oftentimes... It's the younger children or the babies of the family that have experienced being spoiled. Being spoiled rotten. Because the parents at that time, they're just plain wore out. You're crying, they'd do anything to get you to quit crying. You get preference. In fact, one of the benefits to actually having the microphone today is I get to share stories about my brother and my sister. Praise God. And so I'll, of course, leave out all the stories that were about me. There was a time where we were in West Virginia. My younger sister, Michelle, was four years old. We were visiting uh, my great-grandparents who lived down there. But we were, we were also doing a quick visit at my aunt's house, which was about 30 minutes away from where we were staying. And we drove home, and it was about 10 o'clock at night to my great-grandparents' house. And she had a, a cabbage patch doll. How many people remember cabbage patch dolls? She had a Cabbage Patch doll, and, and this, this doll's name was Tommy. And she had forgotten Tommy at the aunt's house. And it was 10 o'clock at night. And she starts crying, four years old. And my dad, God bless him, gets back into the car, drives a half hour one way, grabs the Cabbage Patch doll, returns home with Tommy at 11 o'clock at night, just so the baby of the family would have Tommy to go to bed. Now I can imagine, he would not have done that if Jeremiah or myself had left our G.I. Joes at the aunt's house. He'd have said, listen, you're fine, be tough, suck it up, we'll get it tomorrow. But for the baby of the family, it's worth the hour drive to just make sure that we're taking care of the baby of the family. There was a slip and slide incident. Do you remember the slip and slide incident? Yes. Yes, as in I'm telling the truth. We would have slip and slides. You remember those slip and slides? They were yellow and blue and you'd put water and, and Dawn soap on the thing and you'd run and you'd jump on it and you'd just slide, right? We had gotten the new one that had a pool at the end of the slide and so... My brother and, and, and my cousins were just, we filled it up with water. It was about five inches. And we're having the time of our life. But my sister wanted to go on the slip and slide. And for some reason, in five inches of water with adult supervision, she was terrified. 
terrified that she was going to drown. So the baby of the family got her way. Mom said, listen, you're going to have to drain the water at the end of the pool because she's scared. It doesn't matter how much fun you're having. We're going to take care of the baby of the family. Can I get an amen and get a couple witnesses today that the babies of the family are a little bit spoiled? There was an instance where, where Michelle and Jeremiah were underneath a fort that we had built underneath a clothesline. Again, we played outside and we entertained ourselves. They're in a fort drinking chocolate milk with some straws. And, and her recollection, now listen, they got a little bit different recollection. They're drinking with the straw. And as she's drinking the straw, a little bit squirts out and hits my brother. Now my brother, being the firstborn, a little bit stubborn, decides to suck a full straw of chocolate milk and aim it at her face and proceeded to blow with all of his might. This, of course, angered the baby of the family, and she, in retaliation, did the exact same thing back to them, and now mom is presented with what in the world happened. Notice, the middle child was not involved. <laughs> she remembers they both got in trouble. My brother remembers only he got in trouble because he actually started it, and hers was an accident. The truth is somewhere in between, and God knows. There was my, we played video games growing up. How many people had the original Nintendo back in the 80s? Man, we had Super Mario Brothers. We had The Legend of Zelda. We had Metroid. And, and I so passionately wanted to play these video games. My, my brother, being the firstborn and the focused and the achiever and the leader, said, you know what, I'm going to do the playing. And we had a, a cheat book. He said, you're going to be the book guy. He got to have all the fun playing the video games, and this seven-year-old is looking up the book saying, hey, the next room, make a left. That was the extent of my fun with video games, was being the book. I couldn't even play when he had to go to the bathroom. Because I was the book guy. There was an instance in a grocery store where Jeremiah and Michelle were arguing. And I, it's amazing what your brain remembers. But they were arguing. And my mom, in a moment of frustration, turned around and just swatted just like that. And it just so happened that I was the one that was behind her. There's not much good about the middle, ladies and gentlemen. And that can be the middle child syndrome. You feel overlooked. You feel undervalued. You feel unheard. And, and certainly growing up, there were times that I felt like this. I had an amazing childhood. I had amazing parents. I've got amazing siblings. So don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm just saying there were instances where these typical stereotypes of, of birth order applied in our childhood. I went to, to middle school at Avondale Middle School, and I remember seventh grade middle school, my science teacher, Mr. Maley, we were teaching about um, um, strength, and we, he had a stick, and he, he said the weakest part about this stick right here is right in the middle. I said, of course it is. I've got middle child syndrome. Of course the weakest place of that stick is right in the middle of it. And we had a project that we had to do. 
where he passed out a bunch of toothpicks and we had to try to create this bridge and and you got a better grade the more weight that that bridge could hold and he just kept putting weight on it and weight on it and then finally it broke in the middle and uh, things break in the middle and we didn't get a very good grade on that on that project but I learned that the weakest point between two things is the middle I've studied corporations in an attempt for leadership development and there was a study that was done with over a thousand corporations and they wanted to know uh, why do some corporations succeed and why do some fail? And specifically with the ones that actually fail, where is the point in the corporation that, that it fails? Where's the weak point in the corporation? And you guessed it. The weakest place in a corporation is in the middle. And they said in this, in this study that over a thousand companies that they studied, they said, you know, the CEO or the people at the top, they have enough authority and they have enough um, decision-making power that could hurt the company. But they didn't get there overnight. They've got enough experience and wisdom to be in that position to where those decisions are not made in haste and they're made for the benefit of the company. So typically when they fail, it's not from a place at the top. And then they talked about the new hires, the people that are that are green when they just got hired in. They really don't have enough authority or decision-making power to affect the company as a whole. So there's not enough power there to cause it to fail. But what they have found is we promote based on performance. So if you've got a bunch of new hires and you've got one new hire that's excelling over the rest of the new hires, you identify that new hire as somebody who could be management material. And what happens is, is they promote based upon performance, but they don't provide the training to become a leader. They assume that because you're good at performing, you're going to be good at leading, which are two completely different things. So now you have managers who are in a management role, but they've never been taught how to lead or how to manage. So they're essentially walking blind into their new position of authority. And when something wrong happens or something, an issue needs addressed, they don't want to run it up the chain because now they see that is they're going to view me as the manager in a place of weakness and they don't want the higher-ups to look at them so what happens is the managers they try to fix it on their own and they try to figure out how they can they can patch things up but the truth is you need some guidance and you need some counseling in your life that will help you to make decisions to keep the ship moving forward but what happens is they don't seek out that guidance and that, that, that becomes a moment of weakness. And by the, by the time it blows up, the middle management and the places in the middle, we've known about these problems for a long time. We just really weren't equipped to handle it and we didn't have the confidence to have the people above us handle it because it makes us look weak. Corporations break in the middle. So now you have a middle child learning that things are the weakest in the middle and learning that things break in the middle. And man, I just felt like I was getting beat up a little bit. I was saying, my Lord, have mercy. The middle is not a very good place. And then a few months ago, pastor was teaching. He was teaching about the ministry of Jesus. And before that ministry began, he went and he fasted for 40 days. And the Bible says when the fasting was over, that's when Satan came to him. And he said, Satan will always come to you when you're at your weakest. 
He's, he's an opportunist. He wants to try to attack you when you're down and when you're weak. And of course, I thought, oh, so now in the middle where things are the weakest and where things break, that's where the attack comes from. There's just not a whole lot of good about being in the middle. But I remember the day I came here in 1993 of April. And I remember the day that Sister Esther was teaching a Sunday school class over here in room six. It's where I met my beautiful bride. Can we put a hand clap of praise for my beautiful bride? And it wasn't too long before I heard something that sounded like this. It said, two nations are in thy womb and the elder will serve the younger. It was the first time where I said, my God of mercy, did you hear that? You mean the elder's going to serve the younger? And I said, Jeremiah, did you hear that? It was a glimmer of hope for the middle child that I wasn't always just going to be stuck in the middle. Now I know that that's a prophecy in the Scripture and not, not all elders serve the youngers here, but it was still some hope for me. Then I remember... It was uh, probably 10 years ago now. I was just hungry for the Word of God. And so what I did is I got on YouTube and I started Google or YouTube searching uh, Pastor Harold Hoffman's sermons. How many people know in this room that we have the greatest Bible teacher in the history of the oneness movement? I'm so thankful for Pastor. In fact, that he's, he's been woven into my DNA. He's the only pastor I've ever known. And I find myself, no matter what I'm speaking about or what I'm teaching about, uh, half of the stuff that I say is, is pastor stuff. But I praise God for that because it's helped me develop into who I am today. So I saw a video. He was at the Pentecostals of Sydney, and he was in Australia. And it was, it was probably 14, 15 years ago now. And uh, it's, it's a fun video to watch. Uh, I looked at it. It's just a four- or five-minute video. And he starts teaching about the middle. And that God has a fixation with the middle. And it, and it did something to me. It stirred something inside of me. Because for a lot of my life, I felt like the middle was the overlooked. I felt like the middle was the weak point. I felt like the middle was, was where things break at. And I said, God, you, you want to be in the middle. So I started going through Scriptures and, and trying to look through the lens of God wanting to be in the middle. And, and from the very first story in Scripture, Jesus established the garden in Eden. And it said the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. We have Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is the best representation of Jesus Christ concealed in the Old Testament. If you think about it, he was sold by his brothers. He was uh, falsely accused. There was false witness against him. He was in prison and then rose in power. It's Joseph, but it's Jesus concealed. And Joseph has these dreams and he says, hey, I had a dream. He said, I was in the center. All of you brothers of mine, you were bowing down to me as chaff of the wheat. And you were, you were bowing down to me when I was in the middle. He had another dream and he said, you know what, dad, you were the sun and mom, you were the moon and all my brothers were the stars and you were orbiting around me. Isn't that wonderful? But he was in the center. He was in the middle. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, 
The Bible says he spoke to Moses out of the midst of the burning bush. The Ark of the Covenant that God established as a place for his presence. You had the Ark of the Covenant. You had the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you had these two angels with their wings wrapped around. And when the priest would splash blood on the Ark of the uh, the Mercy Seat, the Bible says that God would show up. He would manifest himself in between or in the middle of the angels on the Ark of the Covenant. Now that Ark of the Covenant was a very powerful thing. And God moved Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. But it was very specific how they would move and how they would set up camp. God said the Ark and the Tabernacle had to be in the middle. And around the tabernacle had to be the Levites, the priesthood. And there would be three tribes to the north and three to the south, three to the east and three to the west. But God himself said, I have to be in the middle of the camp. It was when God spoke to Moses out of the cloud. He said he spoke out of the midst of the cloud. In Zechariah 8 in verse 3, God says, I will dwell in the middle of Jerusalem. When Jesus, when Joseph and Mary lost Jesus, I don't know how you lose somebody. They turn around and they backtrack and they find Jesus. Luke records it this way. He said he was teaching in the temple, but he was in the middle of the doctors, right in the middle. When God, res- when God died on a cross, the Bible says that that veil of the tabernacle of Moses, it said it ripped. And it says very specifically, it ripped right down the middle. In Revelation 7 and 17, it said the Lamb of God is in the middle of the throne. I'm telling you that in heaven, God's throne is not up against a wall. It's in the middle of the room. And in camp round about are the four and twenty elders. And the angels cease not day and night. Holy, holy, holy. And that's where you and I are going to be. We're going to surround the throne of the Almighty because he has to be in the middle. Jesus Christ was crucified on the middle cross. Make no mistake about it. God has a fixation with the middle. There's a Bible verse that says, where two or three are gathered together, I'm going to be in the middle of them. It was in the storm. The disciples were on a ship and the seas are raging and the the lightning is crashing and they're worried if they're gonna survive. And who but Jesus walks on the water in the middle of the storm. The Bible says that the disciples' ship was in the middle of the sea. They were too far out to go back. They weren't close enough to go forward. And in the middle of the mess, Jesus Christ walks on the water and he says, fear not, I'm with you. And one of the greatest miracles that Peter ever experienced was when he got out of the boat and started walking on water. That was in the middle of the sea. God has a fixation with the middle. David said it like this. He said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Can I tell somebody today that a valley is just the middle of two mountains? 
He said, I might look to the left and see a mountain. I might look to my right and see a mountain. And right now I'm in a low point, but I'm not going to be afraid of where I'm at right now because thou art with me. David understood something that you and I need to understand. If you're in the middle of a storm, if you're in the middle of a mess, if you're in the middle of a trial, if your kids are in the middle of a mess, if you're in the middle of an un, uh, not a good diagnosis, God is with you in the middle. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So why in the world? Why in the world would God allow us to go through trials? No, to go through these storms. I believe it's for a purpose. Nothing in God is wasted. Nothing. I believe God's got a fixation with the middle because God understands who He is. He is the Almighty. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the King of Peace. He is the restorer of my soul. He is the Lamb of God. He is the salvation of the world. He is almighty, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. He is the God that was and is and is to come. He is Alpha and He's Omega. He understands who He is. And it's because He understands who He is, He can't only be at the beginning. He can't only be at the end. He wants to be in the center of every decision. He wants to be in the center of your life. He wants to be in the center of your marriage. He wants to be in the middle of your family. He wants to be in the middle of your job. He wants to be in the middle of your school. He wants to be in the middle of your storm, in your darkest night. He wants to be right in the middle of it because he is God Almighty. He is Jehovah Jireh. I believe one of the reasons why God allows us to be in the middle and and get into a dark place and get into these trials and these storms, I believe can be explained with a 1950 study by a John Hopkins professor by the name of Charles Richter. Charles Richter was a scientist in the 1950s, and he wanted to do a study with some rats. It's a little bit cruel, so bear with me. He took a, a three wild rats and he took three domesticated rats and he put them in buckets of water and for some reason wanted to see how long it would take them to drown. He had a hypothesis that the wild rats, because they were used to survival, because they were stronger, because they had to fend for themselves, they had more stamina because they lived in the wild and not in a cage. He said, I think the wild rats are going to be able to survive longer than the domesticated rats. And after about two or three minutes, the the wild rats were swimming. They started investigating their container that they were in. They dove under the water and tried to look for a way out and couldn't find a way out. And in two to three minutes, they drowned. For some reason, the domesticated rats were able to last two to three times longer Then the wild rats, which puzzled Charles and prompted another experiment. He got another group of wild rats and he put them in the very same bucket of water. And after about two to three minutes, which was the time that the previous group had drowned, 
he decided when they started to struggle, when they started to give up, he reached his hand in there and pulled them out of drowning. He comforted them. He made them, patted them off and got them dried up and he allowed them to recover. Then the crazy scientist put them back into the water. Can I tell you that after being rescued, after finding hope of a rescuer, that those rats were able to swim and tread water for two days because hope is powerful. There is might in hope. And those rats knew all I got to do is hold on for that hand that's coming. All I got to do is tread water just a little bit longer because I know my rescuer is coming. All I got to do is dig a little deeper because I know he's coming. I know he's coming. And God allows you and I to go through some mess, to go through the muck and the mire because what it does, it says, I'm going to get you through it. I'm your rescuer. I'll pull you out. And then you're more equipped for tomorrow. You're more equipped for the next storm. Because the next storm might be darker and deeper than the one you're in right now. And God knows I've got to strengthen you. God knows I've got to build you up. Because what's coming, you're not ready for just yet. But I'm going to take you through this muck. Because you got to survive that one. And if you can get through this one, there's going to be hope inside of you. There's going to be confidence and faith. God did it back then. He's going to do it now. He was with me back then. He's with me now. It might not look good, but God's with me. It might not. I don't have an answer, but God is providing my escape. I'll praise God today for the people who are getting baptized. At this point, if you're one of those people, I want you to go ahead and get ready for your water baptism. Praise the Lord. Can we thank God for the baptisms, the miracles that are getting ready to happen today? Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 10. Peter said, Humble yourselves therefore unto the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary as a roaring lion. Notice I didn't say your adversary a lion. We give Satan too much credit. The Bible doesn't say he is a lion. The Bible said he's as a lion. There is only one lion. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that lion gave birth to more lions. We give Satan way too much credit. The only thing that he has is his voice. He's as a lion. And when he is roaring, you naturally think, I have heard the roar of a lion. It must be a lion. But the Bible says he's as a lion. It also says that my heel is going to bruise his head. He does not have authority over you or over me. God has given his authority to his bride and to his children. Listen to Job. Job was somebody who got nominated by God. What an honor. And, and Satan goes to God and, he's, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, I can't. You've got him on the protected list. 
That ought to tell you something. Satan can't just do whatever he wants to do. You see, our problem in Christianity is we want to give God the praise and the glory when we're on the mountaintop. When the victory comes, we're quick to give God the authority. But when we're in a trial, when we're in a valley, we say, you know what, I'm just under attack of the enemy. You're giving Satan the same power in your storm that you're giving God on the mountaintop. Satan doesn't have that authority. The Bible says that God has all power. If God has all power, Satan doesn't have any. The only thing he can do is convince you to mess up. His contempt you and try to seduce you into sinning. That's the only thing he has is his voice. But if we recognize the voice, there is no authority that he has over you or over me. Peter goes on, he says, As a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast and steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions that are accomplished in the brethren that are in the world. But grace be of all, but God, but the great, can I, can I speak? Pray for me. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ. Listen to this. After, everybody say after. After you have suffered a while. The suffering is to make you perfect. It's to establish you. And to strengthen you. And to settle you. Jesus told Peter. Satan has come to me. He wants to sift you. And and Jesus is telling Peter. He says. But I have prayed for you. That your faith wouldn't fail. Notice Satan had to come to Jesus. Hey, I want to I wanna start messing with Peter a little bit. Peter's the one who denied Christ. He's the one who I believe went through three days of deep and dark depression. But God used the three days of guilt and shame and regret because he said, you're the rock. I'm going to change your name. And when he changed his name, I don't believe Peter was the rock yet. Peter had to go through a metamorphosis. And it was in the dark days, and it was in the depression, and it was what God allowed Satan to do to Peter that allowed Peter when the resurrection happened. And he was able to put his arms around Messiah. And he was able to get over that guilt of betrayal, that regret, and that shame. Now Peter became the rock. He's the rock that preached in Acts chapter 2. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening today. He said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's for everybody. The Bible says, for this promise is unto you, unto your children, and all those who are far off. As many as the Lord our God should call. We're the far off. God's called you and he's called my, I, myself. The suffering is made to strengthen you. It's made to make you perfect. It's made to establish you and to settle you. Paul said it in Corinthians like this. He said, and he said unto me, this is when Paul is praying for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. He said, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. But he had a vision of this man. And, he, and he's asking for this thorn to be removed. And, and God's response to Paul is, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
God decided to join your weakness to his perfecting strength. And if his strength is going to be perfected, you and I have to go into a place of weakness. And weakness happens in the middle. Weakness happens at a breaking point. Weakness happens in the valley and in the darkness and in the storm. But it's in the storm that God is made perfect. And Paul said, Most gladly thereof I would rather glory in my infirmities than in the power that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen to this, it's powerful. Therefore, I take pleasure. I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in reproaches. I take pleasure in necessity. I take pleasure in persecutions and in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, if we could develop the mindset of the New Testament church, if we could grasp what Paul and Peter are teaching in this time, that when I'm on the mountaintop, glory to God. When I'm in a valley, glory to God. And when you recognize the storms in your life, when you recognize the times where you are overwhelmed, when you recognize the times where you can't see one step in front of you, if we, like Paul, could say, I take pleasure in the storm, I take pleasure in the valley, because I know that God is using it to refine me. I know that God is using it to perfect me and to strengthen me. In Jesus' name, he is using it for your good, for all things work together for the good of them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. You see, on the mountain, we win. In the valley, we win. There's not a devil in hell that can stand up against you. This church wins. There's going to be a new temple in the property to the north. Satan can't stop it. God's miraculous hand is upon us. We're in the vision campaign. I appreciate so much the, the Let's Imagine campaign. We are coming upon one year. You know what that means? It's a three-year campaign. We're getting ready to get into the middle of the campaign, the middle year. Okay? It's either going to break you or it's going to make you. Either you're going to let Satan, who's there, to, to come at you at your weak point, and you're going you're gonna to succumb to that temptation, or you're going to turn, you're going to lift your eyes to the hills. Whence cometh your help? And you're going to turn to the Almighty God. You watch the miraculous hand of God on your life. It's what Brent Campbell said today. Jesus blessed it and he gave it to the disciples. And as they gave it away, it multiplied. That's the miracle of multiplication. That's what we're doing with Let's Imagine. It's a sacrifice. I remember praying, coming home from Brother Mitchell's church before we launched Let's Imagine. And I was just praying. I said, God, send us some wealthy people. Lord, we'll get started on this building right away. If we could just get some people that got some money, God, then, then, then it wouldn't take a long time to do it. And I felt so strongly the rebuke of the Lord. And he said to me, he said, I refuse. I refuse to let you build something for me that doesn't cost you anything. That's why God's using you and using me. The simple things to confound the minds of the wise. But you watch the miraculous hand of God upon your life, upon your job, upon your business, because he knows the miracle's gonna come, but it's gonna be in your hands. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
God's got a fixation with the middle. He wants to be in the middle of everything. You ever known somebody like that? No matter what's going on, they got to be in the middle of it. That's Jesus. He's that person. So much so that only, not only does God want to be in the middle of, of your trial and in your victories and in your life, wherever you go, whatever you do, He chose to fill people with His Spirit. God wants to literally exist inside of you. The Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. Jesus taught. He said, out of your belly. Where's your belly? Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. This He spoke of the Holy Ghost. They didn't understand what He was saying. He spoke of the Holy Ghost that, that would come down once He was glorified. That's what the infilling of the Holy Ghost is. God existing in the middle. In the middle of you. As you say in today, we're going to go ahead. I invite you all up to come to the front. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what you've been dealing with. But I do understand how life works. There are seasons of sweet spices and there are seasons of bitter herbs and if you're in the season of sweet spices thank God glorify God in it if you're in the season of bitter herbs maybe you're dealing with a hard situation right now I've come to remind you that Jesus Christ has an obsession with being in the middle and he's with you in the middle of it if you have never been baptized by water, that is happening today. If you've never done that, I invite you, I appeal to you, let that happen today. When she goes down in the name of Jesus Christ, I want there to be an eruption. We ought to have an eruption. Heaven's getting ready to erupt right now. Why don't we join with heaven right now in worship and praise for the miraculous hand of God. Let's pray with her, church. Let's pray. Create an atmosphere of worship right now. Atmosphere of anticipation for the miraculous hand of God. Baptism of the Holy Ghost. Today's your day.